you can use that realization. You can use just the acceptance of your own mortality as a way to unlock every motivation, every goal, every desire you've ever had to give yourself license to go after the things you want to because ultimately they're just not that scary and you don't have that much time left. So start working on them now. That was April Seifert. She is a social psychologist and host of the Women Inspired podcast. She rocks and I think that you will feel her enthusiasm In this interview, as she said herself, listen to me thumping the table as I talk about this stuff. She is passionate and that is why I really was drawn to her. What makes life worth living? That is different for all of us. But one thing that isn't is that we're mere mortals. It is part of being human. Our days are limited April and this discussion, we're addressing just that idea. She's talking about the power of recognizing that our time here doesn't go on forever, that one day there will be no more days, and that can be the greatest motivator to creating the lives that we want to live. Because if we can get out of our own way and get over our own stuff, We can create lives that truly make us feel alive. April believes in intentional living. She believes in pushing the edges of your comfort zone. And the way she delivers that message is so inspiring. Here we're talking a lot about April's story and why she is so passionate about this. The life events that have shaped her. We also talk about psychology, as we're both psychologists, finding the edges of your own life and how you can get over things like shyness and get out of your own way when you get perspective. You can find more about April at aprilcipher.com. Now, I will say, if you think you're going to get triggered or you've got some sensitive small ears around somewhere that might be triggered around a conversation about mortality, then I just want to give you a heads up. There's a lot of that in this conversation. But I think if you're daring enough to listen, you'll come out the other side with a little bit more fire in your belly to make this life beautiful. Apologies in advance, but my microphone is a little flicky at times during this interview. I'm not okay with that. I have bought a new one because that's just not going to fly. But without further ado, less talking about me, more talking about the content. Let's get into it. Welcome to Here to Thrive. I'm your host, Kate Snowwise. This is a podcast for people who are ready to step up and live a happier life. It's for those of us who are dedicated to understanding ourselves and getting the best that we can out of this thing called life. It's a mix of psychology and modern spiritual thought, always with a focus on practical advice so that you can take it back and apply it to your own life. I don't believe we're here to merely survive. I truly believe we're here to thrive. So let's get going. April, I am so excited to have you on my show today after we have already recorded an episode for your wonderful podcast. Hello, fellow podcaster, and I'm so excited to be here. I love the work you're doing, and this is just awesome. So just as a little bit of a backstory, April and I connected online, and we share so much of the same vision and passion and even a lot of similarities in our background, but I wanted to bring April on here to thrive because I really feel like your story, April, is something that just adds so much to this vision of living with intention and being really purposeful with how we're creating our lives and how that really is us getting the most out of life. So I want to start by talking a little bit about your story. 
Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I, I'm going to give you the really cliff's notes, like high level version, and then we can kind of dive into some specific aspects of it where it makes sense. But, you know, I grew up in the Midwest in the United States in a very, what I would call normal, whatever, you know, my conception of normal at the time was house, mom, dad, brother, middle-class, boring, nothing notable to say about it, household. And things were like that for a while, but my family really took a big change uh, when I was about six, seven years old. My dad was actually diagnosed with colon cancer, and he had had, we found out later on, he had been having symptoms for quite a while, and unfortunately, the bugger with cancer is that when you ignore it and you wait a while, it gets a head start on you. So... For the next five years, we really, as a family, went through an incredibly difficult journey of watching my dad go through every treatment you can possibly imagine that you can give someone to treat them for cancer. We went through experimental treatments. He went from being, you know, he was a six foot tall person, went from weighing about 180 pounds to less than 100 pounds on a large frame of a man. Just an incredibly difficult journey. And ultimately, when I was um, 11 years old, my dad passed away. So you're a seven-year-old kid Mm -hmm. who is living the normal white picket fence suburban life. Mm -hmm. And then your family gets hit by this rock. But you're seven years old. Like I remember being seven years old. And that was just the age at which you're starting to understand life, right? You've got those memories. So this picture really permeates your life from seven to 11 and obviously then going on. Looking back now at your childhood, what do you think that process really facilitated in you? Can you look back and think, wow, like that made me the person I am today? Yeah, well, uh, that's a great question because it's very nuanced and I, as an adult, have spent a lot of time, you know, I'm 38 years old now, so it's been a lot of years since my dad passed away, which has given me a lot of time to think about this very thing. And the amazing thing about kids, for anyone who has kids, to just sort of put my hat on as a parent and as an adult, and then also remembering what I was like as that seven-year-old kid, kids have an incredible ability to compartmentalize. So I almost remember my life during that period as cleaved into, there was still, uh, shockingly so, the very normal life. I went to school. I worried about weird things with my friends. I was embarrassed about, you know, awkwardness and all of that stuff that comes with being a little kid and a a young girl and all the experiences that everybody goes through that that are so normal. Had all of those and remember them very, very vividly at the time. Um, But I also had this sort of second life of understanding that something very, very big and very, very scary was happening that could potentially not turn out well. I mean, because the thing with my family is that we were all very, very open. And so we knew when my dad went to treatment, we knew when it was working, we knew when it wasn't, we knew when we were trying something new, when he had tests, what those results were, we knew those things. And so I also had that side to me that came to terms with mortality at a very, very young age. And that particular piece of it has permeated so much of the rest of my life. This idea of coming face to face with more true mortality and the fact that, you know, we, we all, we don't get an infinite amount of time here. So that's the best way that I can put it. It was cleaved in two with this very important, big, heavy lesson. Right. That we are all mortal, that we're all going to get to the end of our days someday. We absolutely are. And, and the thing is, the piece and the nuance that I really want your audience to understand 
that took me a long time to come to is that we've all probably been in the experience where someone we know, maybe a friend or a coworker or a family member or somebody loses a spouse or maybe they lose their battle to some type of condition or they suffer an accident or something like that. Someone's life ends. We typically think about that if we allow ourselves to go there at all. We think about that in terms of, wow, what must it be like to be that person who lost their spouse? What must it be like to be in the position of having to watch your loved one go through that? Where we, and that's, I would say, kind of the, the mediocre path down this down this journey where you can really go if you really let yourself go there. And it's hard. I'm not going to lie. It's very hard, but there's a step further that you can take it. Not just, gosh, what must it be like to lose your spouse? The step further is you yourself, not your spouse, you yourself will die someday. And what must that realization be like? And that is some heady shit right there. It is it is heady shit, but you just saying that just gave me the full body tingles, which I feel like when we resonate with truth, you know, that is it. Like I do you know, I immediately think of the Foo Fighters song, because I'm a bit of a Foo Fighters fan, but no one's getting out of here alive. No. Like Dead on Arrival is the name of the song, if you guys want to know. But you're like, and I just, sometimes I sing that, my little heart out to that song. And I'm like, none of us are getting out of here alive. So what are we doing with our precious days and those moments in the interim? It's true. It's true. And two, you know, not only has that made me think about how precious my days are and how important the experience of them is, but it also completely flipped on its head this notion of fear, because the reason why we don't let ourselves go there, the reason why we we if we even do kind of go there, we think about ourselves as the surviving spouse. Like that's where we're, we will allow ourselves to go. The reason why we don't do it is because it's terrifying. Like, oh, my God, that is like so terrifying. It's hard to even wrap your mind around it. And if you can really bask in that, like literally like meditate on it, let yourself marinate in that fear. It will reframe your relationship with fear for everything else. Nothing else is scary compared to that. Not as scary, nowhere near it. What is scary is the fact that you're not going to be here someday. If you're an adult, I don't want to freak you out even more. I hate to break it to you, but like, you're like, who's this sad lady this woman brought on this podcast? But like, who, like you're a big chunk of that finite life is actually already over. And so I don't see these things to be negative. Like I said, I don't see these things to bring people down. Rather, you can use that realization. You can use just the acceptance of your own mortality as a way to unlock every motivation, every goal, every desire you've ever had to give yourself license to go after the things you want to, because ultimately they're just not that scary and you don't have that much time left. So start working on them now. That's what I love about you and your story, which we're going to go into a touch more, but that you're not a sad person. You've had this hard shit to face, and we're going to talk a little bit more about that, but you're not a sad person. You have taken that emotion and you've taken those realizations and you've channeled it into power. You've lit fire under your own ass to say, I am damn well going to live the life of my dreams and I'm going to start it right now. There is no waiting. There is no, that stage isn't scary enough to keep me from it. You know, you're like, this is the perfect fuel to create the life of anyone's dreams. Absolutely. 100%. And every single person can do it because every single person is on that same exact path. 100% of us. So you lose your dad when you're 11 years old, April, but it wasn't all that much longer that you faced your own personal struggle. Can we talk a little bit about your own health and what happened in your teen years? Yeah, yeah. So 
not surprisingly, after my dad passed away, there was a very crazy readjustment period that I would say lasts. I'm not sure if it completely ever goes away. But during that period, I was maybe 12 or 13 years old. I started having these really strange physical symptoms. So I would smile and my smile was really lopsided. My face kind of felt a little bit weird and I would take a shower and, um, you know, we, I'd turn on the, the tap water and the water wouldn't get what, you know, it warms up and the cool water was actually physically painful for me. And I would notice that when I would put a shirt on, my torso felt really weird. It was as though someone had drawn a line down my body and part of my torso was kind of numb or something. It was really bizarre. So we went to some doctors initially, you know, very early on. And they essentially, the way I I like to joke is they essentially diagnosed me with, um, grieving child with a side order of, you know, hysterical girl. Like they basically (laughs) said, grieving child. I love that grieving child with it. This is, uh, this is all psychosocial. This is not right. Yep. And not to discount that because that definitely happens. But, you know, at the time that was not what was happening to me. So time goes on. I continue to have those types of symptoms. And there's something you need to know about me at that time. You will have never met somebody who is more shy. Not possible. So brutally shy at the time. And I would never have drawn attention to myself if there was a way to avoid it. So knowing that, one day I was in uh, junior high school and, you know, we had one of my classes had let out and I was getting ready to go to my next class and I had to go downstairs to go to my locker and I wasn't able to walk very well and I couldn't really pinpoint why. It's just that I was having a hard time walking in addition to all these other crazy symptoms that I had been having. And so I went to go down the stairs to get to my locker and I actually fell down the stairs at school while, you know, three dozen other people were crowded on the stairs with me. I fell down the stairs and obviously drew all this embarrassing attention to myself, was completely mortified. I picked myself up as quickly as I could shuffle. I got myself to the principal's office and I asked to call my mom. And that day she took me to the emergency room because that was the fastest place to go to get an appointment. I saw a doctor that day who referred me, who quickly figured out what was happening was neurological. He referred me to a neurologist and fast forward through about a year and a half of crazy tests, MRIs, spinal taps, dozens and dozens and dozens of blood tests, EEGs where they glue electrodes to your head and make you do all these crazy things and they measure brain activity. All this stuff uh, happened and my doctor sat us down, my neurologist sat us down and he said, well, I don't have anything conclusive, but the only thing that I can think of that you might have is multiple sclerosis. And instead of continuing to test you and letting this condition you know, work, you know, do its work on you any longer, I think we should treat you and we should see if it works. And so that day he dropped the bomb on me that, uh, and the, the lesson essentially that I learned that day is, you know, this, the health that I thought I had, the, I was this quote unquote healthy person, right? The health that I thought I had ended that day. Like you're healthy until somebody tells you you're not, And that doctor that day told me I wasn't. How old are you? Uh, About 14 or so. So it's not like you're an adult. It's not like you were like, okay, I was healthy until I, it's like you're a 14 year old kid. Mm -hmm. That is, that is, whoa. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, the, the prospect of going on medication, it sounds like it's, it's a really no big deal. Like, right. Go on medication, whatever, and see if you get better. Um, the medication that I had to take was, um, injections of interferon weekly that I would have to give myself deep into my muscle, um, which is scary. They would make me really sick. Uh, they were open about that. You're going to get the worst flu of your life every day, one or well, every week for a couple of days. And um, they're about $3,000 a month. Just lost dad. And now, mom, we have to somehow come up with $3,000 a month to pay for my medication. Right. Yep. 
Um, but all, you know, ultimately we, we went home and we thought about it because of all of that. I mean, that's just a ton to put on a family and we just didn't even know how to process it. So we went home and we thought about it. And, um, as we were doing that, uh, flash forward, the punchline is I do have MS, but it sort of, it came back and it reared its ugly head and I went blind. Um, and talk about putting some shit into perspective, right? Like I have this choice. I can have a fighting chance and I can learn how to give myself these stupid injections and deal with being sick, or I can face the reality that this condition and do nothing and face the reality that this condition will take my mobility. It will take my eyesight. God knows what else it will take if it has already done this. I mean, it just put it into perspective. We're like, call it in. We'll figure it out. Send the nurse. We're going to do the injections. We'll figure it out. Yes, some way, somehow. So at this point, it's not like you and probably your mother can see the path forward. You just know that you have to start walking the path, right? Oh, exactly. Absolutely. And we didn't know, you know, at the time, we didn't know if the medication would work. We didn't know how well. We didn't know whether I'd tolerate it at all and be able to stay on it. Um, we had no idea what to expect. We just knew that staying where we were and not trying something was just not an option because of how scary it it had already become. Right. I feel like when you look back at that part of your story and we'll, we'll fast forward to where you're at today soon, but it's like, that again is an analogy to so many parts of our lives when we're standing where we are and it's scary, whichever way, way you look you know, and mm-hmm. that sometimes you just got to walk the path anyway. Mm-hmm. Oh, gosh, yeah. Gosh, yeah. And you don't know, you don't know what's at the end of it. You just know, you know, things that I've thought about since then is, all right, I'm going to take the first step and then I'm going to take the second one and third and fourth and fifth. And by the time maybe I get to that fifth step, I'll have a better vantage point about the path forward than I did five steps ago. Like maybe the horizon will look a little different and I might have some direction of where to go in five steps, but I don't right now. So I'm just going to keep walking and I, I'm just going to see if I can figure it out along the way. Right. This is why I love you because I mean, my messaging is so the same, but the other option was just to, when we're talking about that vantage point, the other option is just to stay where you are, or you can take those few steps and hope that things will become clearer. And in my experience, they do typically become clearer. They absolutely do. And the the strange piece though, is that people, and this is broad, right? This is, should I quit my job? Should I, you know, leave my, you know, boyfriend who isn't, you know, doing it for me anymore? Is this hobby something I want to try? Whatever it is, right? You, there's a path there. Maybe you, maybe you want to start marching down it. Maybe you don't, but for so many things, we worry so much. We think that the comfortable situation that we're in even if it's not perfectly comfortable, we're like worried to change. It's like the idea of changing from where we are just keeps us immobile where we're at. And we don't realize that you're missing out. Like by staying where you're, where you are and saying yes to that situation, you're saying no to potentially incredible things that could happen down the path. You're saying an immediate no to all of those things because you're unwilling to be slightly uncomfortable to experience a slightly different situation because you're, you're going down a path for the first time. And I just, in my experience, in the work that I've done, it's just that, that immobility that's just not the place to stay. It's always worth it to be a little bit uncomfortable to do a little bit of exploring. I think of our lives a lot like, you know, muscles, our human muscles. If we don't use them, they atrophy. And I feel like if we don't live our lives pushing the edges of them, we Mm. atrophy. I think we're programmed for growth. We're programmed for pushing the edges of our lives and seeing where we can take it. And if we don't do that, we kind of just feel a little broken and sad inside. 
Oh, we absolutely do. I've used that analogy so many times with risk tolerance. You know, there's, there's activities and hobbies that I have now that if you would have asked me 10 years ago, I would have told you you're flipping crazy that I was going to do these things now. But I mean, and to, and to other people right now, I look like a flipping, flipping crazy person, but like, it's amazing what happens when, you know, that shy girl that I told you about who's mortified for falling down the stairs because she had a crazy ass chronic condition, like incurable illness that is not embarrassing. That's just like a side effect. Oh my God. You know, that person, I started because of these things with my dad and because of experiencing this health situation myself, because of all of those things, like, Hey, you're going to die someday and you are not guaranteed to be a healthy person forever. Meaning TikTok get moving. I started doing exactly what you're saying. Start, you know, nudging that risk tolerance, that barrier up, start like flirting with where the edge of it is. And so for me, that was running. I had never run more than two miles in my life. And I thought, okay, I'm going to run a 10 K that's impossible in my mind. Like this is not possible in my mind, but I'm going to run a 10 K. And so I ran my first 10 K I signed up and I got some friends to be crazy and sign up with me and we figured it out and we did it. And from there I ran a 10 miler and then I ran a half marathon and then I ran several marathons and it was just that bumping up of that risk tolerance. You get brave and you get momentum behind it fast, like way faster than you ever could give yourself credit for. It happens fast. I love the way you said, well, figure it out. And you know, that's the reality, right? When you put your mind to something and you're like, I don't know how to run a 2K, we'll figure it out. And you do, Mm -hmm. you figure Mm -hmm. it out. You do. And your brain changes in the process of it. So every intentional or even sometimes unintentional situation that I've found myself or put myself in where I was really pushing that risk boundary mentally, what you have to do to get through a situation that's uncomfortable like that. And really hard, your brain learns how to adapt and that flows over into every other aspect of your life. So, you know, running and having to endure that endurance side of things has made it easier for me in situations like giving birth to my first kid. That was the most miraculous, amazing experience of my life. But it's because I was using the same mental things that I learned from marathon training that day. Same things, same mentality, same coping mechanisms. So that, you know, cheesy cliche about how, you know, learning takes place at the edge of your comfort zone. It's cliche because it's true. People say it because it's true. It absolutely does. You cannot learn by staying comfortable. Well, rush ahead. Obviously, you are 38 years old and you're talking about running. So the medication worked, April? It did psychotically well. I mean, it is, you talk about somebody who is grateful. I today, if you met me today, you would have no idea that I have this chronic condition. Now that's not to say I don't have any symptoms. I do have a few that I have to, you know, manage and deal with. Um, but really you would have no idea that I have this chronic condition today. And so essentially what I look at this as is I've been given this second lease on life, but with a lot of wisdom that comes from having it almost be taken away. There's a lot of wisdom behind it and a lot of passion behind it because of that. And that's why I love it. Cause you just, you can feel your passion when you speak and you are inspiring. It's just because you're like, get up and live it because you don't know how long you got. Exactly. And you know, like I said, that does not have to be, you, you hit it. I am not I'm not an unhappy person. I'm not a negative person. I instead, you know, there's this, this concept in Buddhism about thinking about your own death five times a day and how that is used to help people maintain perspective and maintain gratitude and actually live a healthier life. This is like a practice that people focus on. And unwittingly, I sort of stumbled into it by accident via these life experiences. But really, you, 
it opens you up and helps you keep perspective on the things that sure you might still feel a little bit of fear, but it's a lot easier to cast it aside because the fear of not having that experience and then regretting it later is so much bigger than the fear of trying something and whatever, I didn't do it perfectly, who cares? But at least I got to try it. And at least I had the experience and Hey, I'll go out and I'll try it again and I'll get better at it the next time. So, you know, being able to use that notion of mortality and that notion of the impermanence of our own health, using those as a catalyst to get off your damn couch and go do the things that you want to do. Get out of your comfort zone, try something new, put yourself in a little bit of risk. I mean, it's so worth it. And that is the best catalyst ever. I want to hear a little bit more about you pushing some of your own comfort zones. You mentioned you were a shy girl. Do you still consider yourself to be shy or do you feel like you've pushed that comfort zone far enough now that you don't really even associate yourself with that label anymore? I'm fascinated. Oh, no, not at all. Not even close. It's gone. I mean, my husband will joke that he just kind of rolls his eyes every time we go to the airport Uh, That's one of my favorite places. I love going to the airport early if I have to leave. And I love having a little bit of a layover in the airport because I love sitting at the bar. You just never know who you're going to talk to. (laughs) It's awesome. And that's not something that I would have done before. He rolls his eyes every time he gets in an elevator and there happens to be another person that isn't with us in that elevator. I will know that person by the time we reach our floor. It just, again, this these experiences, when I started to let them marinate and I should, I should back up because I should really tell people like where this drove home. I was in graduate school. It's very similar to you. I have a PhD in psychology and I was in graduate school one day and I had, you know, journal articles sitting all over and my apartment was crazy because I was in the middle of writing a paper and I don't know what, what made me think about it, but I was like, God, I still feel shy and awkward in certain social situations. And there are definitely activities and goals that I have that I want to go try and I'm not doing them. And even though I was, you know, chasing a goal of getting my PhD, I still felt like the experience of each day was something that I was going through as almost a default. I was sort of defaulting my days. I didn't feel like I was going out and grabbing life by the, you know, what's and like really experiencing everything. And I thought to myself, what would my dad give for the days that I'm defaulting today? And for me, you know, at, at one point I was, you know, blind in my left eye and I couldn't walk and I couldn't write at all. Cause I had lost my right hand. And I mean, my body was numb <clears throat> and so much like so much nerve pain. It was crazy. And I thought about myself in that situation. And I was like, what would I give in that situation to be given the day today that I'm wasting just sitting here and not going after the things that I wanted to? And so that moment, my brain kind of broke. And officially, I was not shy anymore. I didn't care anymore. I started speaking up a lot more in class. I started taking more liberties in the things that I was writing. And I mean, really, like things got out of hand from there. So absolutely not. I would not consider myself shy in one iota anymore. I just love the way that you're like, yeah, my brain broke that day. We just like the flip was switched and uh, shy no more. Yeah. Absolutely. It was just how, how can you be at that point? I'm like, I am wasting so much time. And that is such a damn shame. It's interesting because I also like I, and this is what I think is interesting and potentially sometimes dangerous about psychology is often people label themselves as shy, as introvert, as those labels, I think are some of the two that I think people get most attached to and often use as excuses. And they, mm-hmm. and they really get attached to the notion. I myself profile as shy, which surprises so many people. 
And I do feel uncomfortable about a lot of social situations, but I do it anyway. Mm-hmm. And that's the thing is that you can override your genetics. You can override your psychosocial makeup. You can, you can override the psychology, but your behavior is what counts. You mm-hmm. don't have to listen to that part of you that says, eek, this is scary. And, and back to what we were talking about before, if you work that muscle out, the stuff that was scary two weeks ago isn't scary anymore. Sure, you're still scared, but you're scared of bigger and badder things now. The stuff that, you know, the the five pound weights that you were lifting two weeks ago, they're not hard anymore. You're on to 10 pounders or 15 pounders. And in a month after that, those are going to feel light and you're going to work and push that envelope even more. So it's not like you're leaving behind you know, these deep seated personality traits, but you're like exactly what we said. You're pushing the boundary of where they start to kick in and, you know, allow you to not go any further. You're just nudging that boundary up and that threshold up constantly. I was saying to a friend recently that I I moved to Minneapolis, St. Paul, six months ago, and I have never found it so easy to meet friends in my entire life. And Aww. I know, I one, the people up here are wonderful. April is also from up here. But the other thing is, I'm not afraid to ask people and ask women to be like, hey, do you want to catch up again? Whereas mm-hmm. the old me would have never done that because there was a chance they wouldn't reciprocate. And now I realize I have nothing to lose. I only have something to gain. It's so true. It's absolutely true. And they probably have those same fe- Well, I'm not even going to say probably. On the whole, people have the same fears. They're afraid of being rejected and you're probably – you know, helping them out. And they're probably breathing a sigh of relief when like you reach out and you make that step because they probably wanted to do it too. Well, that's exactly it. And that's what I have found is that that other women, and I think women making friendships is a, is a serious thing. And it came up with some of my coaching clients last week. And I was like, you've just, you've got to go out on the limb because Mm -hmm. when you step back from your discomfort and you look down at your life, what have you got to lose? You feel uncomfortable. You feel a little shitty because they didn't return your text. Well, in the grand scheme of things, that is a risk worth taking. Absolutely. I totally agree. So you went to grad school. What other, and you've obviously got the PhD in psychology and your social psychology, right? I am. Yes. Can you talk us through what social psychologists do for people who <laughs> have no idea? Because here I am an industrial and organizational psychologist and April's a social psychologist. So we'll give you a bit of a rundown. Yeah. And those actually aren't that far apart. No, they're not. Um, <laughs> um, but essentially both of us are on psychology kind of branches, I would say really quickly in the beginning between like clinical counseling and then the rest of us who do more research oriented, not that clinical and counselors don't do research, but they really focus on helping people heal their past and heal deep psychological problems and things that they may want to work on. So this is where you would typically think of, you know, the the couch people, you sit on the couch and you tell somebody about your mom and whatever. I'm totally making light of it. It's much more than that. I like like that picture. That's that's um, the picture (laughs) I had of a psychologist when I was choosing to become one. I was like, I want that couch... In the corner that someone lies on and stares at the ceiling and I'll sit in a yeah. seat. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So that's not the kind uh, that we are. So social psychology studies uh, the way that people behave and the way that their personality and their psychological background um, interacts within groups of people. And specifically, I studied let's get even more granular than that. I studied social cognitive psychology. So this is like It overlaps a little bit with neuropsychology. It's sort of like the way that your brain functions, not so much the structure of it, like the nerves themselves, but like the way that you organize information in and about social situations. So like, how do you interact with other people as you're taking in cues from them about their race and ethnicity, their gender, their age, what environment you might be in, your past experience with that person, what the experiences you had with other people leading up to that one may have primed you to behave differently. So I really focused on how your brain And the think habits your brain forms when you are in social situations and how that impacts your behavior. 
Love it. Is out of interest, you might know this more than I do, is Amy Cuddy officially a social psychologist? I think she is. Yeah. I, I believe she is. She's cited in like a ton of the research that I did when I was in grad right. school. But yeah. yes. <laughs> and because it just becomes for everyone who's not right up in this little world, right? We're just psychologists. It's just <laughs> yeah. right at all. But I would say just in terms of explaining for people what uh, my qualification, the, the overlap between what April and I do is obviously when we are people in organizations or people in workplaces, which is where my specialization of psychology focus, that is a social network. So that's a massive overlap. Yep, absolutely. I want to ask you the questions now, April, that I ask all of my guests on this podcast. Are you ready for them? I am 100% ready. Are you a morning person or a night person? Oh, I'm such a morning person. 5.30 a.m. every day, Saturday, Sunday, doesn't matter. Love mornings. That's amazing. And how old is your – it's a son, right? Uh, Daughter, two years old. Okay, so are you up before your daughter? Oh, yes, well before her. That's amazing. Do you, I was talking about this with a friend the other day. I think she called it the fringe hours. Do you feel like those hours of getting up before your daughter are so good for your well-being? A hundred percent. They're they're absolutely critical. It uh, actually my morning routine started an hour earlier after I had my daughter because that chunk of time during the day is so important to me that I need to have a little bit of quiet. I need to focus. I don't do any work. I don't, um, I don't check emails. It's really a lot of introspective sort of indulgence into myself happens during that hour and it is non-negotiable. Okay. You have to tell us more introspective indulgence into yourself. What, what is that? Do you do morning pages? Do you meditate? What does that introspection look like? Yeah, it varies. Um, Meditation does happen a lot of mornings. Um, I think it is crazy important. It has just been such a transformative uh, thing in my life. So there are um, meditation happens some mornings and the type of meditation I do might be very different. There might be a morning where I do more of a like quiet, not, not listening to anything more typical breath focused meditation. Sometimes it's more of a gratitude guided meditation. And sometimes it's more of think like neuro along the lines of like neuro sculpting, like it intentionally activating certain parts of my brain. And there's sort of some physicality that's imp- that's part of that. The type of meditation I choose is sort of indulgent. Like, what do I need today? Um, so some days it's meditation. Some days it's like there is an I can't even describe the force. It's like you must write this blog post. You have to write this blog post. That's what this morning was. So this morning it was this force screaming at me like you have to finish this blog post because there's something in you that has to get out onto that paper. Um, sometimes it's that. And sometimes it's, you know, more inspirational content. So I will watch a TED talk or I'll um, read something that is particularly inspiring and motivating. That's where the indulgent part is. It's not, it's not specific and defined. I always do this and then I do this and then I do this. It's more like, what do I need that day? And I'm going to give that to myself. Do you know what is so funny about what you just said? One, first of all, you're almost convincing me that it'll be worth getting up an hour before my kids because that sounds like, that sounds like heaven. The second thing is I am running a, or I've just finished a group coaching program and I legitimately gave that exact question in the exact way that you just said it to them in our last session. And it blows my mind that you ask yourself that every day, you know, like how can I support myself today? What do I need? Yeah. hundred percent. What is like, what does my psyche, what is my, you know, soul, what is my self screaming for today? I'm going to give it to it. Like, we're just going to set ourselves up for success today. Oh yeah. You're almost convincing me. I might have to send an alarm. Oh, a next question around that. Cause I have small children too. Um, do you get pissed if your daughter wakes up early? Oh God! <laughs> Cause how do you how do you manage that? Because this is my grand concern: is that I'll get up and then my kids will hear me get up and I'll be like, "Oh, I didn't get my time." It it is 
Oh God, it is just soul crushing sometimes when that happens. Cause you know, they do right. Every once in a while, they, they, like, hijack you. they just totally throw a wrench in it, but that's why it's five 30. It's not six because that girlfriend cannot get her butt out of bed before six. She might be able to do it at six, but like, man, she cannot get her butt out of bed before six. So it's more likely that I'm going to get that time and less likely that she's going to impede on it. I, similar situation. I like to have some downtime before I go to bed and I get similarly pissed at the end of the night. If she won't go to bed, I'm like, you're killing me here. Like, you know what I'm saying? The, the ramp up and the wind down of the day are really important. And yes, I will self-confess. I, oh my God, it drives me crazy. Yes. I'm just so glad that you were so honest about that. Oh my because God. you know that all the mamas out there are being like, but because every single one of us is going, I would just really be so upset if I had this expectation that I had yes. this time. But I like the way you said that's why it's 530. So you've you've tipped the odds in your favor. Yeah, I think I'm going to have to make it 530 if I would get up to then. <laughs> yeah, I'm high five and all the moms out there like, can I get a damn cup of coffee? Can I get five minutes to just like look at my phone? Can I get five minutes to breathe without someone touching me and needing me for something? Yes, 5.30. That's so, when it happens. So my kids are four and five now, and I'm so relieved that now I can go to the toilet with no one watching because I can just mm. remember when they were toddlers and I was like, oh my gosh, I can't even go to the toilet without you okay. watching me. <laughs> can I say we're at, we're at two. We're starting to potty train. We're super curious about it. Nothing prepared me Sorry to people listening <laughs> to so this. Funny. I'm going there. No, I'm going right there. For this nothing, either. nothing prepared me to be sitting on the toilet trying to like go poop. And my daughter is like, mama pooping and walk goes over and tries to look in the crack between the toilet bowl and the seat. I'm like, oh my God, what made you think to do this? Like no one prepares you for that shit. Pun intended. I like totally put that swear word in there, but like no one prepares you for that. No one prepares you. So I have to admit like, and I've been there, like this is, if you're a mom and your baby still is like one or younger just know we were, we were good enough to tell you that's where you're going. And we're there for you, man. Like we're giggling along with you when your kid walks in and like, good job, mama. High five. You potty on the potty. I'm like, thanks. Mom's proud too. Thanks. <laughs> I'm laughing so hard. All right. What is currently sitting on your nightstand, April? Okay. So I, I, you prepped me for this question. I was really excited. Three things that I pulled off my nightstand. I have a tin of Wonder Woman mints. I actually like grab them. I have the book that one of my upcoming podcast guests wrote called The Secret or The Secrets Leaders Keep. So she has interviewed like a bazillion different um people who are leaders in their field and she's talking through things she's learned from them. And what's her really name? Insight, uh, Amy K. Hutchins really insightful work. And then the third thing is something that I have started recently. It is sort of a free form journal, but what it's turning into is kind of a, a threefold thing. So, uh, it's part brag book. Every single time I get a positive affirmation from someone, I get a note back about a blog post or a podcast episode that I've done. Somebody compliments me on my work, whatever it goes into the brag book, because it's really hard sometimes for us to remember the positive. We focus so much on the negative. So, uh, it's part brag book. It's part gratitude journal. So when things happen that I just want to remember like little sweet things that I'm just really grateful for. Um, yesterday's was I took a bath last night and I threw a $9 bath bomb into the bath with me. And I remember back in grad school when I didn't have a ton of money, $9 was half of my grocery budget for the entire week. And I just burned that thing in one bath. Like that was crazy to that think about. That is so indulgently gorgeous. I know. Isn't that nuts? And then the third thing is inspirational stuff. So maybe it's like, God, that is a beautiful picture of a vacation spot. And that just makes me happy. And I'll cut it out and I'll throw it in there and I'll write some stuff about it. So it's those three part things, but I started doing that on a day to day basis. That's also sort of an indulgent thing. Like it's not strictly a gratitude journal or strictly whatever. It's like, I don't know what I, what do I need to put on that page today? And I need to put a vacation pick on there. So that's what I'm going to do. Do you have a name for that book? 
I don't. I don't even know what it's called. Like you right should... now, mine has mine has flying pigs on it, and it says it's possible. <laughs> okay, so you need to make a name for that book and sell that shit. I totally agree with you. Yeah. I love you. Oh my gosh, <laughs> we have so much to chat about. What is your favorite self care activity? Is it nine dollar bath bombs? Oh man. You know what it is actually? Um, my absolute favorite thing, if I don't do it, I'm not a good person. My husband recognizes it and he's like, you need to go. Um, I have to work out more importantly, I have to lift really heavy weights, preferably on a barbell. Like I have to do really heavy weightlifting and that just keeps me sane and happy and makes me feel like a friggin' powerhouse. I, I love it that that is your self-care activity, but I just can't understand it. But that is phenomenal. I'll <laughs> give it to you. Do you have a favorite book or a book that you have read that changed you? That's so hard because I love all the books. I love them so much. I like have three or four going at the same time always because I just can't not, I just can't not do it. Um, one that is it's a hard read. I've only gotten through it once, but it was really transformational for me. It was Eckhart Tolle, The Power of Now. Um, it's it's a tough read. It's also a tough audiobook. I I usually listen to audiobooks on like 1.25 or 1.5 speed. I just slow it down to actually feel like I was really comprehending what he was saying. But if you want to drill in the importance of living your life to the fullest moment to moment, man, that book will do it. It's funny. I I rave on about Eckhart Tolle. I just, he's one of my gurus, but I have never been able to get through that book. It's rough. I started it and I was like, nah, this is too hard. But A New Earth, I found really easy reading. Have you mm. read A New Earth? I haven't. No, not yet. You should go there as well. Writing it and down. I'll, I will try and go back because I think he wrote The Power of Now first. This, you know, this discussion has come up more than once on this podcast, but <laughs> all right. Favorite long road or life lesson that you took a long while to learn. Have you taken a detour in life where you're like, ah, oh, wow, that I needed to learn that lesson like that. Yeah, gosh, there's a lot. There are a lot. The one that I think I am still learning and that's why I'm going to go to it is I am a recovering not a recovered, a recovering people pleaser. I worry a lot about what other people think and that can keep you from doing the things that you want to do. And that reason alone is why I've worked really hard on it, but it is something I still really struggle with and it's taking me a long time. I think, I think you and I were separated at birth at this point. <laughs> I just... know. I'm so happy. <laughs> <laughs> All right. What is one thing in your day that you can't do without? 5.30, man, 5.30 a.m. Cannot. Like, it's just, I, I just have to have that quiet time in the morning. Yeah. You're, you're convincing. I'm, I'm, oh, I'm going to give it a go. I'm going to have to report back. Okay. I just, I'm going to like give it a go. Do one or two weeks and, and do like one or two weeks and plan like the most indulgent, happy thing you can possibly imagine. That's what you're going to do at 5.30. It makes it easy to get up. Okay. Okay. How would you describe the soul? This is the hardest question. Um, this is extremely hard. Do you believe in a concept of the soul? Um, not in the way that a lot of people do. I'll be totally honest. Um, I don't live in a religious household. And so in the way that we think about it in that way, no, but what I would say is when I think about something so high level like the soul or something so deep or important like the soul, I think about it in a couple of ways. One, it's the thing that makes us human. It's the thing that gives us our motivation. And it sort of in some ways gives us our fears and it gives us it's that voice inside of us. I think about it in that way. And then I also think about it as the physical, think molecular thing that connects us to every other human being, every other living thing, every other organism and thing on the planet and the stars and in the universe. It's that sort of common makeup 
common molecular makeup that unites all of us. So there's sort of an individual piece to it. And then there's sort of a universal all piece to it is the best I've been able to describe it in words. I think that's really powerful. It reminds me of Jung's concept of the collective unconscious as well. Totally. Yeah, totally. Yep. What is fulfillment to you? Fulfillment for me is feeling like I'm doing the things that I need to do to not have regret. I think regret is one of the scariest concepts. And so if I'm, if I'm not putting too much off, if I'm going after the, like, so you talk about soul, right? That, that little voice that kind of taps me or that little thing that kind of taps me on the shoulder and says, you know, you want this. I'm not going away. I'm going to keep talking to you about this. If I'm listening and I'm taking action on those things and I feel like if I went out today, man, I would not regret. I, I did all the things that I wanted to do. That's fulfillment for me. So good. Okay, I'm going to steal a couple more questions from you before we wrap this up. Yeah. We've talked about one of the things that we connected on is this idea of living an intentional life, not just letting life happen to you, but being in the driving seat. I think you refer to it as not living a default day or not yep. living a default life. How do we get ourselves out of that default functioning? Yeah, yeah. Well, so I actually have a tool to help you with some of this. Um, if you go to my website, aprilcypher.com and you sign up there, you'll get instant access to it. You can download it. But essentially one thing that I've, I've encouraged people to do is go through and actually map out. So it's the exercise that's in the tool is this, is this mind mapping exercise where you can go through and map out major sections of your life and you don't have to follow the tool perfectly. It's more like, here's a suggested way you could go through it. But you can also shape it to meet whatever your needs are. But to help you figure out where friction points are. And then also, once you figure out those friction points, so, huh, isn't that funny that every time I hang out with this friend, I leave feeling zapped of my energy and it just isn't something that's filling me up? Recognizing that you're choosing most of that. Like you have at least some degree con of control over most aspects of your life is extremely critical in, in my book, in leading an intentional life and truly believing. And I actually wrote this on somebody's Facebook page today, taking 100% responsibility for 100% of the situations you find yourself in. Like I'm not at fault. I'm not to blame necessarily, but I am responsible for what happens to me from this point forward. And so I'm going to take that responsibility that's a big piece of it. And then also like start paying attention to the stuff that you're just sort of doing because you've always done it and question it. Like, I don't know. Do you have to take that route to work? Do you have to work at that job? Do you have to go in at that time? Do you have to be at all those meetings? Do you have to be the one who does that pickup? Do you have to hang out with that person? Do you have to, you know, organize your morning in that way? Like, can you say no? Things like that. We just don't give ourselves permission to ask and to wrap it all back to the beginning, you don't have time to be default. Like you don't have time to be letting that stuff happen on its own. You need to take that initiative and you need to take that control back. And that is not selfish. That is you living your biggest, most vibrant, big ass life and taking advantage of every minute that you've been given. Oh, I feel so inspired just speaking to you, which is perfect when you're- I'm like gesturing like a crazy person over here. I probably look like so, a nutso. It's so good. It's so good. Final question for you. If you were to leave the listeners with one piece of advice, if you could leave us with one little inspirational thought, what would it be? I'm going to go back to the things we talked about in the beginning. I'll ask you the same exact question that- shifted my life so much, pick a person who's close to you, who passed away, somebody who you really felt that one, somebody who you loved and who loved you, you know, somebody who wanted the best of intentions for you. What would that person give to have the time that you have left? And use that to go do things. And I say, pick a person who you loved, who loved you, because you shouldn't feel guilty about living life when somebody else 
you know, has passed and isn't able to, they loved you, they would want you to. So use that as a catalyst and as motivation to just sort of give yourself license to go do the things that you want to do. It is so critically important. I'm sure you could tell just how much I enjoyed April in this conversation. Now you can find more about April at aprilcipher.com. That is April, S-E-I-F-E-R-T.com. I'm hoping you can understand that because I had real trouble explaining my name to someone today. So I'm hoping you can understand me. A little freebie on April's site is her life by design life blueprinting tool. So if you want to get your hands on that, go over and get signed up. I mentioned her podcast, which is super inspiring. She got the name right, and it's called Women Inspired. Next week, I'm going to be coming to you with a little solo show, as I do every other week. But this one is going to be one that I hope you can come back and listen to every time you need a bit of a pep talk. One of my friends inspired me today, and I thought, how cool would it be if there was one particular podcast episode that you knew you could come back to for a pep talk every time you needed it? So that's what episode 82 is going to be. Come back next week for your serious dose of inspiration. I appreciate the messages you've been sending me lately, telling me how much you've enjoyed the podcast and how you're sharing it with your friends. Keep it up. Share with your friends. I appreciate you so much letting other people in on what we're doing over here. If you'd like to join the Facebook community and continue some of the conversations, just search here to Thrive in Facebook. You can find me over at thrive.how. Till next week, when I'm back with your pep talk, keep thriving, beautiful people. Keep thriving. <laughs>